Okay, let's just bow our heads in prayer and commit the uh, reading of God's word into the Lord's hands. Father God, I thank you for the gift of your word. And I thank you, Lord, that it reveals to us who you are, how you are towards your people, and how we, as your people, should respond. Lord, I pray that you would feed us mentally, emotionally, and spiritually this morning, and guide us, Lord, in the ways of life, that we would better uh, be able to honour you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay then, so even though we're going to be going through chapter 14, we are just going to nip over to 13 and read a couple of verses there. So in Judges 13, verse 1, it says, Again the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So the children of Israel were in a place where they were in this perpetual cycle of living in a place of right relationship with God, but then they would slip into sin and idolatry, and as a result, God would bring a, an oppressive force from a neighbouring nation upon them. And that was designed to recognise that they turned away from God and bring them to a place of repentance and come back to God. And this is the seventh time that they are going through this cycle. This is the beginning of the seventh cycle. And the oppressive force that's come against Israel is the Philistines. And uh, the Philistines occupied um, lower Israel on the coast, and they had five cities that they uh, had. Um, and they say, it says here that this period of oppression lasted 40 years. And that 40 years starts here in Judges chapter 13, but spans all the way forward into 1 Samuel chapter 7, where Samuel came along to finally finish off um, the Philistine oppression and to subdue them. So that was the 40 years. You see, Samson kind of starts the work, but because he compromises in his relationship with God, he never reaches his full potential, and he isn't able to fully deal with the Philistines. It's not until Samuel, the prophet, comes along, and in many ways Samuel is the last of the judges, the first of the prophets, that he's able to properly subdue the Philistine oppression. See, Samson is the sort of guy who... He fritters away the gift that he's been given. He doesn't respect the calling that's been put upon his life. He treats everything like a joke, and as a result, he doesn't reach his potential. And he's a lesson to us that if we have been called, if we've been gifted, don't fritter away that gift. Esteem the gift and the calling you've been given because there is potential for you to serve the Lord and accomplish much for him. But there's also the potential for it to be completely wasted and for you never to become to the man of God or the man or the woman of God uh, that you had called, been called to be. So, Samson had godly parents. Manoah and his wife, and they brought him up in the fear of the Lord. They were from the tribe of Dan, and Dan had been forced back into the mountain regions. All the lowlands that, had, that the tribe of Dan had occupied had been taken over by the Philistines. And really, all the Danites had were two cities, Zorah and Eshtreol. And Samson and his parents came from um, Zorah. And we read uh, in again in Judges 13, verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, 
but you shall conceive and bear a son. So the Lord himself appeared as an angel of the Lord to Manoah's wife and informs her of three things. That she's, though she's barren, she's going to conceive and bear a son. He will deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Uh, he, in other words, he'll be a judge. But also, the Lord says, he is to be a Nazarite from birth. We can see that there in verse 5. For behold, you will conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. After this oppressive force of the Philistines, praise God, the Lord's going to raise up a deliverer, but he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. Now what does it mean to be a Nazarite? A Nazarite was a special vow that was made, it's spoken of in Numbers chapter 6, and Anybody that kept the Nazarite vow uh, had to be um, consecrated and devoted to the Lord for a period of time. And in, during that time, you weren't allowed to partake of grapes, so you weren't allowed to have wine, you weren't allowed to have vinegar, you weren't allowed to have raisins. Um, you were not allowed to cut your hair, and you shouldn't touch a dead body. Now, for most people that took a Nazarite vow, that would only be for... I don't know, a couple of months, something like that. And so your hair wouldn't grow too long and you could go without drink for a couple of months and stuff. For, for Samson, it was to be for his entire life, not to touch a dead body. So when his parents died, he wouldn't be able to bury them. It'd have to be somebody else that did that. He was not allowed to have raisin cakes, Eccles cakes. He wasn't able to have uh, a glass of wine. And when he had fish and chips, no vinegar. You know, that was the, that was the deal. And right at the end of chapter 13, we read uh, in verses 24 and 25, So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanae Dan, between Zorah and Eshtael. Now Samson is brought up with his siblings by godly parents. He is taught to fear the Lord, and the Lord blesses him. The Spirit of the Lord moves on him. Yet, Samson will break not one, not two, but all three of these Nazarite vows as he shows disregard from God. And so really, the lesson of this morning is do not do what Samson did. Can you all say that? Do not do what Samson did. He might be called of God, he might be anointed of God, but do not do what Samson did. Okay, let's go on to chapter 14. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of our brethren? all among my people, that you might go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So, Samson went down to Timnah. The Philistines occupied five city-states. They were Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. Don't worry, I don't expect you to remember those names. But as the Philistines advanced into Canaan, and they started to overpower the Israelites, they started to claim more cities for themselves. Timnah 
was a city that belonged to the Danites. But as they got the better of the Danites, they went up into the mountains, as I said before, and Timnah became a Philistine city. And uh, in fact, it says in Joshua 19, verse 43, when all the cities were dispersed, that Timnah was to be for the Danites. So Samson came down from Zorah in the mountains down to Timnah and he was under the unction of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was leading him in this direction and Samson was looking for an opportunity to answer his calling. It says there in verse 4, he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. He was looking for an opportunity to move against them to fulfill his calling. So there he is, he's going down looking, looking for an opportunity to fulfill his calling. But what he sees is a woman. And he starts getting distracted. Instead of looking for the opportunity to serve God, he starts looking at this woman. And the moment he sees this girl, the things of God just seem to go out of the window. Um, Even before he has a chance to fulfill his calling, his carnal desires uh, start to derail him from the purposes of God. The Lord goes and his loins kick in. And we know this is lust and not love because he has only seen this woman. He's not had a conversation, he's not got to know her at all. All he's done is seen her and he's thinking, I want this woman. Now that is lust. And so, do not do what Samson did. Do not let your flesh overrule your spirit. Keep a close walk with the Lord. And don't let your unclean desires uh, get a foothold and crowd out God. Keep a focus upon those things that God has called you to do and don't let them be put to one side when things of life take over. You should be living a life based, you should not be living a life based upon what you see. That is not the model for a Christian life. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Don't let the things of sight distract us. We should be governed by our faith in God's word, not by the lust of the eyes. Now, we know Samson is being governed by lust because lust dominates. Lust controls and lust makes demands. And what does Samson say to his parents? I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. He's demanding. He's controlling. And it shows how lust is the driving force here. And this is no way to talk to your parents. This is a man operating under lustful control, not being, go- you know, being governed by the flesh, not by the spirit. He's co- and it's causing him to distra- dis- disrespect his mother and father. He's talking to them in a way that he should not. Now, Samson's parents are godly people, and they try to counsel wisdom, wisdom to him. And they say, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. You see, the Mosaic law was clear. Jewish people were only to marry Jewish people. If you were to read Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 4, uh, it clearly forbade intermarriage with other nations that surrounded Canaan. Jewish people, or believing people, should only marry uh, believing people. And three reasons were given for this. The first is, the unbelieving spouse that you would be married to would turn the heart of the Jewish spouse away from the Lord. If a Jew was to marry uh, a Philistine, then the, the Philistine would turn the heart 
of the Jew away from the Lord. The second reason given in Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 to 4 is the Jewish spouse would then end up worshipping the gods of the unbelieving spouse. And the third reason is the wrath of the Lord will be kindled against them. The wrath of the Lord will be kindled against them. So Samson is going against the Mosaic law here by wanting to have this Philistine woman. And he is in defiance of the Lord and his parents. He's setting himself on a course of destruction. Yet, it, you know, it is possible he was just following the trends of society because that practice of intermarriage between other nations was starting to become rife within Israel. And it was because Israel was not following the Mosaic law itself that they were having the wrath of the Lord kindled against them. Hence the Philistines came to oppress them. And it could be that Samson is just following the trends of society. But the thing is, he should know better. He's got a specific calling upon his life. And the Mosaic law says intermarriage with unbelievers was wrong. And this really does show us that that Samson was swayed by his heart and quite possibly by society. And so let's remind ourselves, do not do what Samson did. Do not do what Samson did. Don't allow yourself to be swayed by your heart. Don't allow yourself to be swayed by society. You should be governed by the Spirit of God and you should be governed by the Word of God. Now this principle of not marrying an unbeliever is carried over to the New Testament. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. And it also says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? The Lord wants his children to be married to one another. He wants believer to be married with unbeliever. Uh, he wants believer to be married to believer. He doesn't want the believer to be married to the unbeliever. And this is something that is not really spoken of in churches very much, because there are so much. There is so much intermarriage with unbelievers, and it ruffles a lot of people's feathers. But let me tell you, when I was a young man, I wanted to hear that message. I wanted to be told that you should marry a believer. And so that's why I'm saying that this morning. People here who are single, make sure that you marry a believer. If a Christian chooses to marry an unbeliever, they are in disobedience to the will of God. A Christian partner will support you and help you in your walk with the Lord. You can discuss matters of faith and scripture together. On the way home from church, you can discuss the church meeting. When you're struggling and finding things difficult, you can come together in prayer about the matter. You can bear more fruit if you're married with a believer. But the Christian who is married to an unbeliever doesn't enjoy that support and encouragement. They've got a battle in the home as well as in the rest of society. They often find themselves torn between um, their, their, their church commitments and what their spouse wants to do and end up their church commitments reduce as a result. And the Christian who is married to an unbeliever often finds themselves at odds with their partner about how to live life, about matters of life, about how to raise your children, about right morals, and there's conflict in the home. You don't have that same conflict when you're married 
to a believer. And you might say, well, you know, it's, it's easy for you to say, Matt, you've got uh, a Christian wife, and praise God for my wife. Praise God for her. But let me tell you, it wasn't easy. I didn't meet Abby till I was 35. And during that time, I saw all my friends pairing off and getting married. Everybody seemed to be holding everybody else's hand, and I was left alone standing. And yet, a godly woman said to me, look, Matt, I've made a tremendous mistake by marrying an unbeliever. It's nothing but a struggle. Whatever you do, hold out for that woman that God has got for you. And it was difficult waiting to the age of 35, but praise God for that woman and what she said, and praise God for Abby. You know, if you wait for the Lord, he won't just give you um, what you want. He'll give you above and beyond your expectations. We waited for the Lord for this building, and look at it. It's fantastic. Wait for the Lord. Trust in him. Don't just go for the first thing that you see, just the way that Samson went for the first thing that he saw. Samson was not the waiting type of guy. He was deaf to the reason of his parents. Samson was driven by desire. And so he says, get her for me for she pleases me well. So again, do not do what Samson did. Do not do what Samson said. Don't be impatient. Don't be impatient and be driven just towards what you want. Wait on the Lord for what he wants. Because I tell you, what he will give you if you wait on him is far above and beyond anything that you can get under your own strength. Now we're told there in verse 4 that it was of the Lord. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. Now this does not mean that Samson had a special dispensation from God, that he was allowed to do things that other people weren't allowed to do, and it was okay for him to go and marry this Philistine girl because it was somehow part of the will of God. No, it was not. The Mosaic law was clear. Intermarriage with pagan nations was forbidden. Samson had gone down to Timnah in the spirit, but he came back to Zorah in the flesh. However, the Lord would work through the situation, despite Samson, because of the calling and the anointing that was on him. You see, God is sovereign, and he can overrule even our own flesh. If he's got a calling and a purpose, he can somehow overrule and work through that situation regardless. It says in Romans 8, 28, and we all know this, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God, and listen, to those who are called according to his purpose. Samson was called according to God's purpose. So God would work through that situation, regardless of Samson's disobedience, sin, and rebellion. You see, it's all about the greatness of God, not about this compromise of Samson. Let's read on verses 5 to 9. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, so this is the second time he goes down, and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with a woman, and she pleased Samson well. And some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. In Jewish culture, 
there wasn't a period of courting, followed by a proposal, uh, and then concluding in a wedding. That was not the way things happened in that society. What happened was, you would have an arrangement. The father of the groom and the father of the bride would arrange a match. And there would be a conversation had between the two, and a, pride, a bride price was agreed and paid, and that could be even when, the ch uh, when, when their children were young, to say that, okay, these two people are going to be married when they're older. The fathers of the bride and the groom would arrange a marriage. Then you'd have a period of betrothal, when the bride and groom were legally bound, but not married. Uh, it's a bit more than um, just having a fiancé. It was, it was a legal bond. They wouldn't sleep with each other during that time. They weren't fully married, but they were betrothed. And the bride, during that time, would make herself ready for the groom, and the groom would prepare a place for them to live. That's what happened during the betrothal period. Then, the third stage of the wedding process was that uh, the groom would leave his home and go and fetch his bride, and then would follow the wedding ceremony. And the wedding ceremony was a small affair, attended just by immediate family. And then there would be seven days of feasting, the marriage feast. And uh, many more people were invited to this celebration. And the groom and the bride would only consummate the marriage after the seven days of partying. So for those seven days, I'm guessing the bride and groom only had one thing on their mind, uh, but they had to get through the partying first. And it says there, in Judges 14, verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. So this is the father of Samson going down to Timnah to be able to talk with the father of this Philistine woman to arrange a marriage and for a bride price to be paid. And uh, at some point, it seems as if the company divide. It's almost as if mum and dad go one way and Samson goes another way because he finds himself in a vineyard all by himself. Now, what is grown in a vineyard? Grapes. And what was something that uh, people who had Nazarite vow shouldn't be going near? Grapes. So, Samson's in the wrong place. I mean, what are you doing, dude? You're putting yourself in, a, in the path of temptation by being here. So he's in a dangerous situation, and it's much more dangerous than he first realises. He's not just going to be tempted with juicy grapes on an exhausting journey where he's tired and thirsty. He's going to have to deal with something a bit more. But he's got nobody with him. He's not with his parents to steer him in the right direction. Temptation is in front of him. He's being unwise in his conduct. And do not do what Samson did. Don't put yourself in the path of temptation. Don't put yourself in a place where you know that you've got an area of weakness in your life and you're there right in the path of that temptation and you've got nobody beside you to help guide and protect you. It might be that there are certain websites that you know you shouldn't be going to and you're tempted towards. Put your computer in a public place so people can see that you're on the internet so that you're not putting yourself in the path of temptation. It might be that you've got a problem with drinking. So avoid the pub, or if you're going to go to somewhere like that, make sure you're with friends who are going to watch out for you and protect you. You know, you might, you might have an issue with social media just dominating your life, in which case delete the app from your phone so that you're not tempted to get drawn into that, whatever it might be. Don't do what Samson did. 
Yeah, but the grapes were the least of his problems. Because we're told there, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. Now this term for a a young lion is a fully grown cub. So it's a full grown lion, but a young one. And we know that young animals have a lot more strength than older animals. And (laughs) I don't care how big or old this lion one. No, No one expects a lion to jump out on them, do they? Least of all Samson. But we're told, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would tear apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hands. Now, I'm not in the habit of tearing apart goats, let alone lions, so I'm not too sure what was being described here. But we see here that source, uh, the source of Samson's strength was not his hair and not his physique, but it was the Holy Spirit. Because we're told the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And it was only when the Spirit of the Lord was on him, he was able to tear this lion apart. And really, the terminology uh, used here indicates he tore the lion apart by taking its hind legs and ripping it apart like that, right down the middle. Which is quite a feat. It really is. But, you know, if the strength of Samson's a surprise, and if this lion is a surprise, I still think the biggest surprise is to come because we're told there in the second half of verse 6 he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. How can you not tell your parents what you've done? You're never going to guess what happened to me. This giant lat, this lion jumped out at me but the Lord came and gave me the strength to tear it apart. I mean, I could, not, I could not swallow that. I could not keep that to myself. Yet Samson, he does. I mean, maybe because he was walking among grapes he knew he was in the wrong place and so he wanted to keep that secret from his parents. I don't know, but he kept quiet. So they reach Timnah, Samson talks to the woman from Timnah, and it would seem her personality and her conversation matches her appearance, and he's pleased with her. And I also imagine the two fathers spoke, a match was made, a bride price was paid, and Samson and the woman became betrothed at this point. And then going on in verse 8, we're told that uh, after some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So the betrothal period has passed, and at least a year probably, and he's come to fetch the bride for the wedding. And uh, so the wedding ceremony is just around the corner. And you think, I wonder what ever happened to that lion? And so he turns aside again, back through the vineyard, and he comes across the carcass of the lion. Now bees don't nest where there is moisture. And we're told here that bees had made a nest in the lion. So what's happened is the lion has been there for some time to have completely dried out for bees to make that a home. Our scavengers would have come along, they would have ripped all the flesh off of the lion. It would have just been a skeleton and that would have been dried out in um, the sun. And we're told it took, he took some of the honey in his hands and he went along eating it. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them. And they also ate, but he had not told them that the honey had come out of the carcass of the lion. Now, so, there are two issues here. First of all, the Nazarite vow forbids Samson from touching a dead body. And yet he's put his hands right into the carcass of a dead body to get this honey. So again, he's showing a disregard for the Nazarite vow. He's showing a disregard for the call of God upon his life. A disregard for the things of God. He's he's showing disdain for the Lord in his calling. He's treating the things of God lightly. And we should never treat the things of God lightly. It's like it's a gain to him. 
And then he goes and shares this honey with his parents without telling them where it came from. And really what he's doing by that is he's causing his parents to participate in his sin. And this is a violation of the fifth commandment. Anybody quote the fifth commandment here? Honour your father and mother that the days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. He's not honouring his mother and father by doing this. And will Samson's days be long in the land? No, they won't. He will die a young man, probably in his mid-thirties. Maybe it's because he didn't honour his mother and father. Certainly it's because he's not honouring the calling of God in his life. But this illustrates the corrupting nature of sin, how the, a low regard for the things of God leads to personal sin, but then personal sin has an impact upon other people. Your sin will have an impact upon others. And remember, do not do what Samson did. He showed disregard for the things of God. Don't allow the things of God to become devalued in your sight. We are called to be holy because God is holy. Don't do what Samson did. Samson drew others unwittingly into his sin, his parents. Keep careful guard of your words and your ways and the company that you will behave in the company of others. Don't create an opportunity for sin to creep into other people's lives. You have an influence upon other people. So, by virtue of Samson heading back down to Timnah to get his wife, we can see that this is the beginning of the wedding ceremony. He's come to fetch the bride. And so we read on in verse 10. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there for a young man used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought him, uh, 30 companions to be with him. So this is Samson's wedding day. He's fetched his uh, Philistine bride. They're having the wedding ceremony. And now there is a marriage supper, which will last seven days, and only after those seven days will the marriage be consummated. And we're told, and it happened, when they saw him, they brought him 30 companions to be with him. So it seemed that Samson had no Israelite guests at the wedding. He came just with his parents. I almost wonder whether his parents came under sufferance because they didn't approve, really, of the marriage. And uh, um, so they provide 10 Philistine companions to be with him. And these are the friends of the bridegroom. Uh, one of whom would be his best man. If you were to turn to Matthew 9, verses 14 to 15, Matthew 9, verses 14 and 15, we read this. Then the disciples of John came to him, that's Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus is using a picture of the ancient marriage to talk here. And um, the bridegroom would have friends who would serve as guards. Their job would be to ensure that there was not an attack upon the bridal party. That's what the job of the friends of the bridegroom were. Uh, however, um, Jesus here is saying, look, I'm, I'm with you, so there's no reason to mourn. But if 
the friends of the bridegroom failed in their job, there was an attack upon the bridal party, and the groom was taken, then there'd be reason to mourn. And Jesus is saying, there's a time when I'm going to be taken from you. That's the time to mourn. But I'm with you. No need to mourn at the moment. We're speaking about the same group of people. Friends of the bridegroom, there to guard and protect the bridal party, although I rather suspect they might be there just to guard Samson, because he was an unknown quantity, being an Israelite in Philistine territory. And seven days is a long time to party when you're waiting for your wedding night. And the problem is, when you don't drink, it can last even longer as well, and Samson didn't drink. So while everybody else is having a good time drinking and partying, he's thinking, well, what can I do to pass the time? And he thinks, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to pose a riddle to these 30 Philistine guys who've been kind of set over me to watch me. And so we read in verses... uh, 12 and 13. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you will give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. Now this is an attractive bet, and uh, because it challenges the wits of 30 men against one. The odds are in favor of these 30 men. It massages their ego because they think, oh, we can get the better of this Israelite guy. And, uh, you know, the odds were in their favour. If they lost, they only had to come up with one garment each. But if Samson lost, he had to come up with 30 garments. It was a no-brainer. And this is fine linen that they're talking about. It's the equivalent of your Sunday best clothing, the sort of thing that you would only wear on very special occasions. And uh, typically... Uh, every person would only have one set of fine linen like this for high days and, and holy days. Um, and interestingly enough, in Greek culture, it was quite common for riddles to be set as part of what happened in the wedding feast. If you remember from when I spoke before, the Philistines came from the region of the Aegean near Greece. So they were Greek in origin. So this idea of riddles played to their cultural inclinations as well. So they say there at the end of verse 14, pose your riddle that we may hear it. And so he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. Out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. And we all know what this is talking about. It's talking about the lion, that is something strong, and the something sweet was honey. And this quote, you might well know, is found on Lyle's golden syrup. You can look at this afterwards. And on there, there's a carcass of a lion, and that quote, uh, out of the strong came something sweet. And Abraham Lyle was a devout Christian. He was a Scotsman, and he was an elder at his uh, St. Michael's, his Presbyterian church. And he also ran this sugar refining company, and so when it came to making golden syrup, he wanted a biblical quote, and that's what he came up with. You still see the name... Uh, Abraham Lyle and Sons, the name of the company on the cover there. Um, Abraham Lyle had an arch rival who ran another sugar refining company. That man was called Henry Tate. And uh, they didn't see eye to eye for their entire lifetime. But uh, after Abraham, sorry, Abraham Lyle died, and after Henry Tate died, the two companies ended up merging. And that's how you get Tate and Lyle sugar. That was interesting to me anyway. (laughs) 
So this offers, this obviously refers to the honey that was drawn from the dead lion, and it highlights how everything really was a game to Samson. He was not taking the things of God seriously, and he was playing with the people. And so again, do not do what Samson did. Do not treat life like a game. Do not treat the things of God lightly. Don't toy with other people or the way that Samson was toying with people. And don't gamble. This is, this is a gamble, this is a bet. And we as Christians should not be involved in gambling and betting. Carrying on, uh, the end of verse 14. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. So for three days these guys are wrestling with the riddle, trying to come to terms with it, and I'm sure Samson was enjoying every single moment of them sweating and struggling and working it out and saying, no, that's wrong, no, that's wrong. But come the seventh day, they're fit to burst. Verse 15, but it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, enticed your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? So now we see the true character of these guys. You know, these guys clearly don't like to lose and uh, they are supposed to protect the bridal party, but they're actually attacking the bridal party by threatening Samson's wife, wanting, to extract the, wanting her to extract the answer from her husband. And they place a death threat over her and her father's house uh, if she doesn't deliver the goods. And we know that this is not an idle threat because in chapter 15, when we get there next time in verse six, that's exactly what they do. They do burn down her house with her and her father inside. So these guys are serious people. This is kind of mafia type pressure that they're putting upon them. And we read there in verse 16, then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. You don't love me. You've posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you've not explained it to me. How's this marriage gonna work? I mean, if there's no trust, what's gonna happen? There's no future. And, oh, so this woman from Timnah puts on her best performance. You know, the waterworks go. She's weeping, she's crying. She might even play up to her husband. You know, the way women do, they kind of just, you know, do a figure of eight up on the chest and whisper in the ear and you start to become jelly. And, but her crying, her tears are genuine because she's in fear of her life and the life of her father as well. Her family are at stake. And so, what does Samson say? Uh, and he said to her, at uh, the end of verse 16, look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it even to you? <laughs> Ouch. Who here knows that Samson's not ready for marriage? You know, he'd much rather speak to his parents first than speak to his wife. That's, that's not right. This guy should have gone to marriage lessons. In verse 17, now she wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted and it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then he, then he explained the riddle to the son. To, sorry, a minute. Then he told her because she pressed him so much and then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So Samson's wife has been curious and questioning Samson throughout the whole feast. But when it gets to the seventh day, the pressure really mounts because she has been threatened and uh, she's ramped it up. And it seems as if Samson is strong in the face of a lion, but he's weak 
in the face of a woman. Uh, he's all pathetic under the bed, begging of this desperate woman. He just wants the nagging to stop. And so he tells her, and then she tells the Philistines. And the woman betrays her husband. And uh, so not only is Samson not ready for marriage, it would seem that she's not ready for marriage if she's willing to betray her husband. So do not do what Samson's wife did. Wives, stand by your man. They need your support. Don't nag them. Talk to them. Together, they could have worked this out. But this was a marriage built on sand right from the beginning. And so we read in verse 18. Uh, so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than lion? And ha, ha, ha. He knew straight away what had happened. And he says to them, if you had not ploughed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. <laughs> if you had not ploughed with my heifer, whoa, what did he just call his wife? <laughs> I don't care what culture you're from, uh, this language does not translate well. You never call your wife a heifer. <laughs> okay, he's lost his bet. Okay, his wife has betrayed him. But come on, man, it's your honeymoon night. You're not going to get anywhere by calling your wife a heifer. And he says, you don't plough a field with a heifer. When you plough a field, you don't use a heifer. You use an ox. And he was saying, you've used unorthodox means to be able to get the answer of this riddle. If anybody saw a person plowing a field with a heifer, you'd say, well, man, that's wrong. You're using the wrong animal. And this is what Samson's saying is, well, you've used wrong methods here. You've been, under, you've been underhand in the way that uh, you've dealt with this. The thing is, the riddle was impossible to solve because it doesn't follow the conventions of most riddles. Samson would only be the one who would be able to understand it. So he's accusing of these Philistines of not playing fair, but he's not been playing fair right from the start. Anyway, now he has a debt of 30 sets of garments to pay off. What's he going to do? Verse 19, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon. Ashkelon was one of the five uh, Philistine cities. And he killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger, well, there we go. Then he explained to the uh, 30 guys. So despite Samson's bad choice in marriage, Samson's lack of respect for his parents, Samson's low regard for the things of God, and Samson's attitude of not taking life or the things of God seriously, the calling and anointing of God still rests upon him, not by virtue of his devotion, but by virtue of God's grace. And empowered by the Lord, Samson goes down to Ashkelon, which is what, 23 miles away from Timnah, and he kills 30 Philistine men. He does that which God had called and anointed him to do. He starts to subdue the Philistines. And this is where he starts to really outwork his calling. And he takes their apparel and hands it to the men in Timnah in payment for solving the riddle. And because Ashkelon's 23 miles from Timnah, it's far enough away for the people of Ashkelon not to be able to connect to, it, to the events that's happening at a wedding in Timnah. Um, and verses 19 and 20 give us the two fallouts of Samson's uh, wife's betrayal. We read there, so his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. 
So Samson lost his temper and he lost his wife. And uh, he goes back home to Zora. It's his wedding night and he goes back to Zora. He basically jilts his wife on their wedding night and goes back home. And so the marriage was not consummated. And eventually, the, uh, to save the honour of this woman, uh, the father hastily rearranges for Samson's best man to marry this woman, Samson's wife. And uh, not a bad thing too. Samson and this woman weren't really best suited anyway. But what we see as we look at Samson is a man who just gets it wrong and gets it wrong and gets it wrong. Despite the calling, despite the anointing, despite all that God has given him to be able to do, he decides to live life by his rules, having no regard from God, not respecting his parents, toying and playing with other people, not showing them any regard. And it's only because our God has a, is a sovereign God who works in grace that he's able to do anything of any value for the Lord. And in many respects, the only way that we can ever do anything for the Lord is because of God's grace. We do get it wrong. But let's not look at Samson and think, I can play light with the things of God. Samson played fast and loose with the things of God. I can do as well. You cannot. And we're going to find as we go further on that Samson goes further and further downhill and it doesn't go well with him. Let's, let's determine in our, our hearts not to do what Samson did, but let's determine in our hearts to do what God is speaking to us to do, to follow his call upon our lives. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we pray that you would take your words and confirm them to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognise the calling, the anointing that you've placed on our lives. Help us to be those who hold fast to your word and move forward in obedience to the things that you are asking us to do. Help us to honour you with our words, with our thoughts and our deeds, with respect for others, for love for our husbands and wives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.